0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest DeVinny, lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit as we go. So, if you are reading along with our Bible reading plan, you've made it through First and Second Chronicles now, which must be kind of a relief, because again, they're, they're repeating so many of the stories We've already read. We're now into uh, the book of Ezra, and actually, by the end of the week, you'll have finished Ezra. It's a very short book, and you'll be into Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are fascinating little books, and they're and they're both little books. They're short. Um, they they pick up the story after the exile in Babylon. So, when when Ezra opens, uh, Persia has conquered Babylon. And the Persian king, Cyrus, is is happy to let the Jews return to their homeland if they wish. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, which are clumped together here, they all take place during this time period. Um, and Ezra and Nehemiah in particular are telling two sides of the same story. And, and in fact, they are originally one book. It was just Ezra and Nehemiah, one book. Uh, and we've separated them in our Bibles, I, I think really mainly just as a way of helping to understand sort of where the story shifts perspective. So, both books tell the story of the restoration of the Temple and Jerusalem, and the the beginning of what's called the Second Temple Period, uh, which will continue until Jesus' day. And the Second Temple Period is not like an archaeological distinction or anything like that. It, it is a term to uh, distinguish the, the practice of Judaism during this time period, and it's markedly different um, from what it was before the exile, mostly because it's more effective and the Jewish people are more faithful, um, and, and this is sort of the brand of Judaism that Jesus and his followers uh, are, are raised in. Um, so they, they tell the story from different points of view. So when you get into, into Nehemiah at the end of this week, um, you're going to notice it, it sort of backs up from where Ezra leaves off and tells about many of the same events that happened in Ezra, except a lot of the events that, that Nehemiah talks about are like mentioned in passing in the Book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah goes into great detail. And the reason for that is simple. Ezra and Nehemiah, the the people, the the men who wrote these books and named them after themselves, have very different roles to play, and they're also uh, present at different times. Nehemiah actually gets to Jerusalem first, and he is physically present to oversee the the construction efforts in the city. Ezra is going to come along later, and, and we'll see why in a minute. Um, and so the, the book starts with uh, this decree from Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, the one who conquered Babylon. And it authorizes the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem. And it also actually provides a lot of the funding needed to pay for the rebuilding of the temple and of the city. Now, that sounds a little odd, it, it is. The Persian Empire took a really, uh, for the time at least, a really unique approach to the people they conquered. Um, basically, they were like the benevolent conquerors. They would come in, they would conquer an area, and then they would treat the conquered people really, really well. They would lavish gifts on them, they would ensure that they had all the freedoms and rights that they wanted. It was really remarkable. Uh, the basic idea behind it was that the Persians really saw themselves sort of as... Uh, a, a force for good in the world. They believed it was their destiny to conquer the world for good. And there, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the simplest way of explaining it. They believed they had a divine responsibility to rule the world in the name of their God and to do so benevolently. So they treated conquered peoples pretty well. Uh, it, it, as far as ancient empires go, If you had to pick one to be ruled by, you would pick the Persians. Uh, They were were remarkably kind and generous to the people they ruled over. So, actually the Jewish people are not the only ones that, that Cyrus does this to. Really, everyone who's been conquered by Babylon gets this same treatment. Uh, they're they're able to return home to their homes because the Jewish people are not the only ones that the Babylonians have carried off into exile they're all able to return home the The Persian king helps them all to rebuild their homes and, and you know the, this there's this bit in there about the things that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem this was a really common Babylonian practice they would when they conquered a people they would take their most highly treasured religious objects from their most important places of worship and carry them off to Babylon uh and put them in their temples. It was like the ultimate trophy, right? We captured your God. Uh, And so the Persians let all those people take those things home. Basically, it was their way of building goodwill towards these people. um, And they would even actually do it to the Babylonians who they just conquered. So this is how it starts, right? Cyrus is letting them go home. He's going to help them rebuild the temple. It's all good. Um... But notice that that not all of the Jews in exile will return. Plenty of them are going to stay behind in Babylon. And in fact, the historian Josephus tells us that the majority of the Jews remained in Babylon. Because by that time, they've built lives there, right? They have jobs, they have homes, they have families, they have communities. And by contrast, returning to Jerusalem would mean a, a lot of uncertainty. What are you going to do for work? Where are you going to live? The city was in bad shape. You have to rebuild it. That's a big ask. So most of the Jews actually are not going to go home to Jerusalem. They're going to stay in Babylon because now that's their home. In fact, a number of them by now have already migrated further east into Persia and are living in the Persian cities. And some of them have migrated in other parts of the empire. And so now there are... Communities of Jewish people all around the Middle East and, and into what we would now call modern-day Iran and further north—they've uh, they've spread quite far now, uh, and they'll continue to do that throughout the reign of the Persian Empire. So much so that that really, there's probably for the rest of history, there are probably more Jews living outside of. Israel than there are inside of it. Now that may be different now, I'm not really sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's not. And and this is kind of significant. The world has radically changed, and, and Judaism has to change as well, because now you've got a bunch of Jews who don't live in Jerusalem, and even when the temple is rebuilt, most Jews are unable to worship at it, because they don't live anywhere near it. So Judaism begins to shift and change and begins to take on many of the forms that we might recognize in modern Judaism. Very interesting stuff, but it's not really part of the story here. Um, So a lot of these Jews who do not return to Jerusalem will nonetheless uh, send money with the people who are going to go back. They're going to financially support it. They're going to make sure it gets done because they do recognize the importance of this. So they're going to send their money. And, and so then Ezra tells this story, right? after he gives you like a list of, of the exiles, right? Who were returning. And he's going to tell this story about these neighboring peoples who were opposed to what they're doing. Now, the neighboring peoples, um, they probably consist of a, sort of a mix. Some of them will be people who were um, resettled around Jerusalem by the Assyrians 200 years before. Remember, when the, when the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped out by Assyria, the survivors of that war are, are forcibly relocated throughout the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians then forcibly relocated other people from Mesopotamia into the area that had been around Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. So you've got all these people who were not Jewish in any sense who, who live in the area, who been who were not native, but they're there now. And there's also uh, Jewish peasants who were left behind in the land during the exile. The farmers in the countryside and, and things like that—they were never—they were never carried off. Most of them are still there. And it's been, you know, seventy years. It's been a long time. They've, they've gone on with their own lives they've established their own networks they've they've built their own sort of economic networks and political networks and they're happy with the way things are and so they're not all that thrilled about the idea of the the city being rebuilt and the temple being rebuilt and this major sort of jewish religious center popping up and there are also persian officials who are trying to establish their power in in what for them is still sort of newly conquered territory none of them are very happy that the Jewish people are going to come and, and not only rebuild the city, but they're going to build walls around this city, right? They're going to turn the city into a fortress. That's a little unnerving for people because it's not it's not like this is one of the official Persian cities. So there's there's a bit of a threat being perceived there. And so they start trying to get the project stopped, and they succeed in getting it paused. They get, a, they get a pause to happen by complaining to the king, and by now it's a new king. But now, Cyrus the Great is gone. Uh, this is now King Darius, who is uh, interestingly not Cyrus the Great's son. There's a whole fascinating story of, of how that happened, but basically Cyrus' children were killed. Darius may have killed one of them himself and then uh, pretended to be the guy who killed the assassin. It's a really long... <laughs> kind of fascinating story if you want to dig into it. Darius, however, is is actually just one of Cyrus's generals. He would have been one of the people leading the armies that conquered Babylon and now he's become the king. And, And so, really, the subtext here is that these Persian officials realize that Cyrus is gone. There's a new king in power who is not a blood relative of Cyrus and who probably knows nothing of Cyrus's initial decree to restore Jerusalem, and because he's a new king and he's not Cyrus, he might actually have a different way of operating. He may want to be stricter with their newly conquered people. So they're testing him out. And so they send him a note saying, look, are you really going to let these people who we've just conquered rebuild this big fortress city? And Darius says, well, maybe that's not a good idea. And he, he pauses construction until the people who were in Jerusalem overseeing the rebuilding project sent him a letter saying, look, your predecessor decreed that we were going to do this. So Darius orders a search of the royal records. And he finds, not in Babylon or in Susa, Babylon is his new capital, Susa is the old capital, he finds it in a city called Ekbatana, which is a weird little name, but it's, it's the summer palace of the Persian kings. It sits high in these mountains in the, in the middle of uh, what we would now call Iran, And it's the summer palace because, you know, in the Middle East, of course, things get very hot and unpleasant in the middle of summer. But that palace is high up in the mountains and it's nice and cool and pleasant all summer long. So the Persian kings like to spend their summer there. And and he finds in that palace a record of Cyrus ordering the construction of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. The Persians are excellent record keepers. So naturally he finds that. And then he does just what Cyrus did. And so will the next Persian king. There will be continuous support for the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall. And this is where Ezra comes in. He's been telling this story all along, but actually, up to this point, Ezra has not been in Jerusalem. We don't really know where he was. He might have been in Babylon, might have been in a Persian city, but he wasn't in Jerusalem. Ezra is this figure who is, uh, he's descended from a priestly family, right? His ancestors were priests in Jerusalem. And not only is he descended from a priestly family, but he himself is a scribe, which means he is an expert on Jewish law and customs. So he's a natural choice to be the new high priest, because he doesn't just know the Torah, he embodies the Torah. He is an incredibly faithful man who upholds the teachings of the Torah, as well as anybody possibly could. And so there's this odd little episode where the king of Persia orders Ezra to return to Jerusalem and establish Jewish law in Jerusalem. Weird, huh? Here's a king ordering someone of a religion he does not believe in to return to a city who's, that's under this king's rule and establish a completely different legal system. Why? Well, again, there is, there is, within the Persian mindset, a fundamental respect for the religious beliefs of the conquered peoples. And, and the idea behind it is always the same, that, that if you allow the people you've conquered to live as they want to live, They're not going to resent you. They won't rebel against you. They'll support you. They'll like you. They will appreciate your protection. And it will be easier to rule your empire. The Persian kings were very wise in that sense. They recognized it was in their interest to allow the Jewish people uh, and all of the other peoples who lived under Persian rule to do as they wished so long as it didn't challenge Persian authority. And the Jews... By this time, they're very clear that, hey, we're fine with with living under Persian rule. You guys are treating us well. We'll just go along with it. It seems like this is what God wants for us. And indeed, it does seem like that's what God wants for them. Um, The whole time throughout this book, they're attributing all of of the success of the Persian Empire to God's will. The Jews really believe that, that God has willed the Persians into power, that God has willed them to be under Persian rule. And so they're fine with it. They aren't raising any fuss. So, the king of Persia sends Ezra to Jerusalem to establish Jewish law there. And Ezra arrives and immediately sets about doing it, doesn't he? He, he finds the temple is basically done, the, the wall is basically restored, now he's coming to take over as high priest, and so he's going to start with uh, reinstituting the worship in the temple and all the sacrifices that they're making and all of that good stuff, uh, and that's what. He does, right off the bat. He immediately begins going through all the things in in the Torah that they're supposed to do, and establishing the rituals of daily sacrifice, and establishing the the festivals that they're supposed to hold. And there's this, this episode towards the end of the book that takes up a couple of chapters where he basically realizes there's all these people in Jerusalem, and some of them will have been exiles who have returned. Some of them will have been people who never left. They're the peasants who remained in the land during the exile, but it seems like a huge number of them have, are men who have married women who are not Jewish. Which is, of course, strictly forbidden by Jewish law. And so there's this, this bit that seems really kind of cruel to us, where he demands that all these people divorce their wives and leave their families, and they do. They divorce them. It's this mass divorce. Now, did this really happen? Is this a real historical event? I mean, quite possibly, yeah. Again, it seems just too cruel to us, right? We would never want to ask someone to do that. And, and in fact, in the New Testament, Paul explicitly tells people, um, hey, if you are married to a non-believer, don't divorce them. God may find his way into their heart through you, so you might as well just stay married. Um, So, Paul actually contradicts this advice, but again, Paul is living under a new covenant. He's not living under the same covenant that Ezra and the people of Israel are living under. The rules have changed by the time we get to Paul. The rules for us are somewhat different than they were in the Old Testament. And we have to understand that. These people are living under a different covenant, and by being married to someone who is not Jewish, they are violating their covenant with God. And it is it is harsher than the covenant we live under. Um, so we should be thankful that, that the rules are different for us now. But the reality is, this is, this is what they lived with. This is what they agreed to, and there are reasons for it, and those reasons have been well established in the Old Testament by this time, right? Look at what happens every time the people of Israel are influenced by other cultures around them. Death and destruction on an unprecedented scale every time. The exile itself was caused by by the people of Israel being influenced by other cultures and other religions. They did not remain apart. One of the core parts of the original covenant, the covenant in the Old Testament, is that the people of Israel have to remain apart from the rest of the world. That's how it works. That's how they remain God's people. Because at this time, Jesus has not come. The Messiah has not come. The power of sin is much stronger then than it is now. The Holy Spirit has not been imparted to the people yet, and the only way to remain at least somewhat free from sin is to be ruthless in separating yourself from the influences of sin. So this does seem harsh to us, because... We are no longer living under that covenant. We are not required to do the same thing. You can marry someone who's non-Christian if you so choose. It might make for a more difficult marriage, but you can do it. You're free to do it. These people were not. And so one of the first and most important acts of Ezra's tenure as high priest is to reestablish the purity of God's people of Israel by disentangling the men of Israel from their relationships to foreign women. And if you need reminding of why this is so important, think back into Chronicles and Samuel and Kings and think about why the kingdom split in the first place and why why all of these bad things have happened to Israel. It was Solomon marrying a bunch of foreign wives and after he married them he let them set up their own altars and their own temples in Israel to worship their foreign gods and that set Israel on this path to destruction and exile Ezra knows that the people know that when they are going through this bit where they are divorcing all these these women they've married they are being reminded of the fact that it was marriages to foreign people that brought about the destruction of Jerusalem and brought about the destruction of the first temple. And so as they dedicate the second temple, they also undo this connection to foreign cultures and gods that got them into this mess in the first place. So there is there is a symmetry here where it was marriages to foreign women that brought in the worship of false gods, and led to the destruction of the first temple. And now, as they rededicate a new temple, they cut off their ties to foreign cultures. And this is significant. And it works. And that's the most important part. It works. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, will never again embrace the worship of foreign gods. Never again. It does not happen. The idolatry that led to their exile, that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, is gone forever. And so while this measure seems drastic to us, it worked. It was necessary, and it worked. And that's the most important thing. So with these reforms, with his his leadership as the high priest, Israel begins a new era. And after the darkness of the books of Kings and Chronicles, the darkness of the exile, the darkness of of the monarchy after Solomon, it's like a breath of fresh air comes in. The people of Israel are home. The temple is rebuilt. And they are living faithfully once more. It's a good time for them. It won't last forever, but it's a good time for them. It will last for a good long chunk of time. So that's the book of Ezra. You're reading the whole thing this week, and then I believe you'll read all of Nehemiah next week. You'll start later this week. And Nehemiah, is, uh, again, it's a, I'll, I'll cover Nehemiah next week's podcast because I think you'll still be reading it as we uh, get through that. Um, similar book, similar stories the same time period. But we have no questions this week, by the way. And I want to remind you as we get into the fall, you can always send in your questions to me if you want. If you want to ask questions about the books we've read, the books we're going to read, uh, any questions at all you have about the Bible, you are free to to ask them, to email them in to me at forest.divinney at asburycc.org or to put them on our Facebook page, or just to ask me in person if you see me around. Uh, You're always welcome to do that. Um, Looking ahead to this fall, I don't know yet. I don't know yet if we're going to resume an adult Bible study in person. Uh, We're still working on that. Um, Even if we do, I will likely keep this podcast going, because it does seem that there are some people whom it reaches uh, who are not able to come in person on a regular basis, so I think this is a good way to, to ensure that we're all able to study the Bible anyway. Um, but if you're looking forward to... Uh, if, well, let me, let me say it this way. Um, if we're going to start up a midweek Bible study for adults in person again, if we're going to do basically the in-person version of this podcast as well as doing the podcast, um, I need to know how much interest there actually is. So. Uh, if you're if you're listening and you're enjoying this but you would like to do it in person let me know uh, and, and that way I'll have a good idea of, of how much interest there is in that so until next week my friends God bless you all stay out of the heat and I'll see you on Sunday